Good morning, church. It's um, good to see you all. Good to worship Jesus with you all. And it's really good to get back into our series through the Psalms. We took a break from the Psalms, um, as Daniel was sharing, to mourn and grieve um, the loss of Rick, which we are still doing. And, you know, I'm just so comforted in knowing how glorious and how assured our confidence is in Christ. What a beautiful thing to know that God, once we're his, nothing can take us away. And that is something that's brought me so much hope and joy through this season. Now, going through the Psalms for the past, I don't know, I think we started at the beginning of the year, has been like riding an emotional roller coaster. It's been so up and down, right? We've had studied songs of praise and thanksgiving, which has brought our spirits high. We've left this place just stoked. And we've considered prayers of lament and sorrow, and hopelessness over injustice and evil. And those things have caused our hearts to grieve, considering our culture, the time we're living, all that's happening in the world. And through it all, what we've seen, the common thread we've seen is God's steadfast love and his faithfulness towards his people. What an amazing reality that we, as the body of Christ, can latch onto every single day. It's been a great book to meditate on. Now, Psalm 38 it fits right in with this roller coaster ride. And today we are going to be dipping low. Because as we just have read and saw, the psalmist is in anguish. Psalm 38 is a prayer of a person who is in serious anguish over sickness, sin, and all that accompanies it. Now, for some, this psalm may not sound very relatable right now. For some of you today, this psalm is something that you're living right now whether you are caught and trapped or feel trapped in sin, whether you are enduring through sickness and suffering personally or a family member or a friend. But for all of us here today, I trust that the Holy Spirit has a word for us as we pray and lament and think about what it means to repent and depend on God. So let's jump right in. Um, the superscription, which is basically below the chapter number and the title, is kind of our context setter. It's that little description of what this letter was for as far as the author and the occasion. And from what we can read in Psalm 38, it says, this is a Psalm of David for the memorial offering. Now we see that David is a scribed author. And in the ESV translation, we read that this Psalm is for the memorial offering, which is better understood as a Psalm that is for remembering or to bring to remembrance. So what we have here is a prayer of David to bring to remembrance. Now, we can't be sure if the person who put the superscription here was actually David or if it was actually the worship leaders of Israel. It could have easily been the worship leaders of Israel who added this superscription in later. And the reason why they would do this is so that all the worshipers who come to church can hear and pray and associate with a psalm like this and be able to be encouraged to both walk in obedience, to avoid sin, but also to use this prayer as a template a way to kind of insert your own sickness symptoms or what's going on in your life and use as a template to pray to the Lord corporately. Or the superscription could have been added by the author, which would be describing his heart's desire for God to remember him in his suffering and show him mercy. Now, given how, to how personal this letter is, this prayer is, we have very good reason to believe it is the latter. That this psalm is a personal plea for God to remember and to help his chosen one, King David, in his great time of affliction. 
Now, for us today, this psalm serves us in a few ways. I'm going to give us just a few of those things that I believe we can pull from this psalm this morning. Number one, it reminds us of the seriousness of sin. This has been a common theme throughout the psalms, how serious sin is and how serious God takes sin. It also teaches us of God's present mercies, which I don't know about you, but I need to hear about God's mercies every single day. And lastly, this psalm points us to Christ's atoning death, the work of Christ on the cross that has made you and has made me whole and well and in right standing before the Lord. So we'll see that throughout the psalm. Now, the psalm has four movements. I'll give you those four. Number one, the psalmist's request for mercy. The psalmist's request for mercy. Number two, the psalmist's reasons for the request. Number three, the psalmist's faint hope. And number four, the psalmist's concluding request for mercy. So really quick, number one, the psalmist's request for mercy. Number two, the psalmist's reason for the request. Number three, the psalmist's faint hope. And number four, the psalmist's concluding request for mercy. Let's start with his request for mercy in Psalm 38, verse 1. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Now, the psalmist begins his prayer by asking God to show him mercy. How? He says, by disciplining or correcting him as a friend and not as a foe. To discipline and correct him, not in his anger, not in his wrath, not as an enemy, but as a friend. Now, the psalmist appears to be in trouble, and he's being corrected by God here, so he asks for kindness in that correction. Now, notice with me that the psalmist doesn't ask for God to not discipline him. He's not asking for God to give him a pass on his sin. No, he's asking for God to discipline him in love. To look at me and to discipline me in love and not and anger. Now, if you've been with us through the study through the Psalms, it seems strange to hear David ask this because most of the Psalms written by David have beamed with confidence that God is on his side. I mean, God is with him. We aren't able to pick up on this confidence here in Psalm 38. In this Psalm, David's confidence lies more in the terrifying reality that God's judgment and anger was coming towards him, that God was not on his side here, That's what David's confidence seems to be in as he writes this. Now, we aren't able to pick up on the confidence here in Psalm 38. David's confidence lies more in the terrifying reality that God was coming for him. Now, he gives a little more insight into this desperate situation in verse 2. He says in Psalm 38, verse 2, For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. Now, the image we're getting here is of arrows being sunk into the back of someone. It's pretty graphic. I've seen Braveheart enough times to actually have a picture in my mind of what it looks like for arrows to come down on people. And that's what comes to my mind when I read this. But it's graphic. It's violent. It sounds terrifying. David is saying that God's discipline has rained down on him like arrows and has caused him terrible suffering. Now, this hardly sounds like the relationship we have between, which that God has between David throughout the Bible, Right? We've seen the relationship, and it seems to be one of love and mutual enjoyment and pleasure and just great friendship. David and God are friends, but friends don't shoot friends with arrows. <laughs> friends don't smack each other around, maybe sometimes, out of love, that is. 
This doesn't sound like the actions of a father towards his son or a friend towards its friend, but rather the actions of an enemy. After all, this is how David describes God's actions towards his enemies, which he wrote about earlier in the Psalter. In Psalm 7, verses 12 and 13, this is how, how, God descri- this is how David describes God's actions towards his enemy. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. And again in Psalm 10, uh, we read, Your hand will find out all your, Psalm 21, verse 8 through 12, excuse me. Your hand will find out all your enemies, and your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth, and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. That's pretty like graphic language. Up to this point, David has used these descriptors of God's wrath towards his enemies, not towards his friends, which begs the question, why is David crying out for mercy from God's wrath when he has always been considered to be for God and not against him. Let's read on. This is our second movement, the psalmist's reasons for the request in Psalm 38, verse 3. He says, There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. Here David gives us the main reason from his perspective on why he is experiencing God's discipline and God's wrath. Verse three, because of sin. Because of sin. Now, we aren't told what sin David is referring to here, but it appears to be severe. So severe that it has brought about an illness that has sucked out all the soundness in his flesh, we read in verse three, which means all of his strength, his vitality, his physical and his mental fortitude is gone. And it has ignited God's indignation, which means his anger towards him. So it must have been severe. We can take that as much from this. But all David makes clear to us is that he has sinned against God, which brings us back to the topic of how God interacts towards friends and towards his foes. Why is David using descriptors of God's acts towards his enemies in past Psalms towards himself here in Psalm 38? And the answer lies in God's dealing with sin. How God deals with sin. It is sin that alienates us from God. The prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 59, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Sin separates us. And not only does it alienate us or separate us, but it also puts us at odds with God because he is sinless. He is holy and he cannot fellowship with darkness. Sin separates and sin puts us at odds with God. The Apostle Paul reminded the church of this in Colossians 1.21 as he was asking them to remember where they were before they encountered Christ. He says in verse 21, And you who were once alienated, separated, and hostile, enemies in mind, doing evil deeds. Those who sin against God are his enemies, hostile in mind, evil in actions, and deserving of God's wrath. Which is absolutely terrifying absolutely terrifying. But then Paul went on to say, although you were alienated, 
although you were hostile towards God, God still showed his love for us in that, Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, enemies, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, speaking of Jesus, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That's the gospel. The gospel restores us. The gospel reconciles us, and it brings us back into right relationship with God. Now, David didn't hear the gospel like we hear it on this side of the cross. He doesn't get to hear the gospel like we preach by God's grace every single Sunday. But what David did is what every child of God has done. He believed in God and relied on God's steadfast love and mercy. And the same can be said about David as it was about Abraham in James chapter 2, verse 23. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. So what is the primary difference between God's friends and God's enemies? It's not the absence of sin. It's not the presence of sin. The difference is the reliance and the trust and the faith that God has justly dealt with our sins in the person of Christ. That separates the believer from the non-believer, the friend from the foe. And it is only in the name of Jesus that anyone can be made friends with God. Now, there are a few other places in the Psalter where God's judgment towards David is described with some of the graphic language we see here in Psalm 38. And both these Psalms that we see them in have to be dealing with, have to do with dealing with sin, God's dealing with sin. We see it in Psalm 32, verse 4. David says, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And then in Psalm 51, David says also, verse 3, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Then in verse 8, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Now, if you couple these psalms, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, with our psalm today, we see a few patterns here, and I want to flush them out for you. The first pattern we see is that God takes sin very serious. The first pattern we see in our text is that God takes sin very serious. He will never sweep it under the rug. He will never just let it go, just let it go, roll off his back. For those who have no regard for God, they will be held accountable for their sin and they will experience God's holy judgment and that is a certainty. But for those who are found in Christ, I mean they have placed their faith in Jesus and turned from their sin, they will find shelter from God's wrath because Christ has endured the wrath of God on our behalf. The prophet Isaiah says it so beautifully in Isaiah 53. Surely, speaking of Christ, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Church, Christ is our shelter. He is our refuge. He is our ark, so to speak, that shielded us from the floods of God's judgment. But as we read here, he did not just shield us, he died for us. And it is he who gives sinners, who gives us the confidence to stand justified before God. Now, the second pattern we see is that sin seriously messes us up. Sin jacks us up. Now, this is our second movement in the text where the psalmist describes why he begs for mercy. This is Psalm 38, verses 5 through 14. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me in the light of my eyes. It also has gone from me. My friends and companions, they stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. Verse 13, but I'm like a deaf man. I do not hear. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and whose mouth are no rebukes. Now, Anyone who has lived in a state of unconfessed sin or confessed sin and serious guilt should be able to identify with some of these symptoms here, right? We should be able to identify with some symptoms that he's describing. Also, anyone who's ever lived through serious sickness should be able to identify with some of these afflictions described here. He describes festering wounds, hunched over in pain, Body aches, weak, exhausted, moaning and groaning, anxiousness, and the appearance of life slipping away. And to top it all off, his condition is causing his friends and his family to distance themselves from him. The psalmist is clearly describing a sickness that is causing great anguish here. And from what we can gather, the psalmist believes this sickness is a result of his sin, which adds layers and layers to the pain and the anguish to his spirit and mind. Now, this brings up the question, which we've addressed several times in the psalm series, is our sickness a result of sin? Is sickness a result of sin? And my answer to that is a strong maybe. It's a, it's a strong maybe, okay? And I'm gonna explain to you why. Now, we've gone over this, few times, again, like I mentioned before in the Psalms, because this has been a, been a reality in the psalmist's life, complaining about sickness, tying it to sin or consequences to sin. And in both instances, we've looked at examples in the Old Testament and the New Testament to see that sickness brought about by sin is certainly a reality. We've also seen that sickness oftentimes is separate from any personal sin. To simplify this morning, I'm going to give you two texts to help clear this up and explain this point. We'll look at two statements from Jesus to support the maybe answer. The first is found in John 5, where Jesus is healing people. He heals an invalid who has been lame for 38 years. Jesus tells this man to take up his bed and walk, and the man is miraculously healed, we read in John 5. 
Later, Jesus sees this man in the temple. Verse 14, he says, afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus is connecting his wellness with his righteous living here. Jesus is subtly teaching that sin can bring suffering and sickness. But later on in Jesus' ministry in John 9, Jesus and his disciples are cruising around and the disciples ask him the question about a beggar sitting by the roadway who was blind from birth. Here's what they said in John 9 verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Verse 3, Jesus answered, it was not this man who sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, Jesus is explaining that this man's affliction was not connected to any sin that he or his parents had committed in the past. He was just born blind, and God had a purpose in that. Now, these two examples simply show that sickness can be a result of personal sin, but it certainly doesn't have to be, and I would say it most commonly isn't. But I, we, I would be wise, or we would be wise, to do as the psalmist does in Psalm 139, to adopt this prayer every time we have troubling circumstances or sickness. As the prayer, as the psalmist did in Psalm 139, verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, I do want to state that all sickness, death, and affliction all that isn't of God is a result of sin, right? All that we experience in this life that has just brought sorrow and pain and sickness and death is a result of sin entering into the world. And there is no escaping the effects of sin in this present world. And when it comes to personal sin, the effects can be deep and wide. The psalmist goes on to share how deep and how wide they are from him, from his story personally here in our text. He shares this. There are four things that he brings up in our text this morning. He shares that sin affects us mentally. So sin's mental effects, sin's physical effects, sin's social effects, and sin's assailing effects. Let me repeat that. Sin's mental effects, sin's physical effects, sin's social effects, and sin's assailing effects effects. Let's check them out. Let's start with sin's mental effects. In verse 4, we read this, for my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. Now, this is a description of how sin can be overwhelming. That sin can bring about anxiety. It can bring about fear. It can bring about hopelessness. The language of iniquity going over his head is that of a wave that is battering him and drowning him. If you ever tried to surf or swam in the ocean, or you do surf, and you've been on a big day, this metaphor example becomes very real if you've been held down or feel like you're about to drown in the ocean. The psalmist has used the waters and waves as metaphors before throughout the psalms. He used them to share that overwhelming circumstances that he has been in and his need for, them to be, for him to be saved through those circumstances. If you want to look at Psalm, 39, Psalm 69, excuse me, Psalm 18, both of those passages share this metaphor. In Psalm 32, he uses the waters as an example of judgment and despair for the person who does not cry out to God when he is able to. 
It says in verse, Psalm 32, verse 6, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. The point here is that sin affects us mentally. It can cause insecurity. It can cause anxiety. It can cause depression. As Christians, we have the Spirit of God living inside of us. He's called the Holy Spirit. We sing about him. We talk about him. We pray to him. He's a part of the triune God. And when we are hiding and concealing sin in our hearts, the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. John 16, 8 says Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. First unto salvation and then unto sanctification. The Holy Spirit is continually convicting and convincing and teaching us. Another way of looking at conviction is as godly guilt that comes into the life of the believer who is not living the way they know God desires them to. Godly guilt that comes into our lives when we're not living the way that we know God desires us to. When we resist godly guilt, we open the door for all kinds of insecurity, anxiousness, and the feelings of being overtaken by sin. Sin can affect our minds and emotions. And I want to be clear, I'm not saying that insecurities and anxiousness and depression is always a result of personal sin, but it is absolutely clear that it can be a symptom. It can be a symptom. Sin can have mental effects on us. The second thing is sin's physical effects. Now there is no question the psalmist's sin was affecting him physically, right? I mean, he read that laundry list of afflictions in verses 5 through 11. He mentioned festering wounds, hunched over in pain, body aches, weakness, exhaustion, moaning and groaning, and that he had the appearance that life was just slipping away from him. Now, Hebrew scholars believe that this is a description of not just one illness, but of multiple illnesses, multiple diseases. And the reason behind this would be in planning this prayer for liturgical uses. So the psalmist, as he's writing this, he's thinking about how other people can try to identify with this prayer and use it in their own prayer life. That's how it would work. Now, we can't be sure about what type of sickness the psalmist is describing here, but in all honesty, when I first read this psalm, what came to my mind was COVID. Not a joke. I just, that's what I thought of. I thought of just the, the, the laundry list of things he's experiencing and then I thought of the isolation from community and quarantine. Now, I don't think he's talking about COVID, to be clear. I don't think he's talking about COVID. But this does demonstrate the point that we worshipers in the 21st century can look at a psalm like this and attach what we're going through and use this as liturgical use. To grab this prayer out of the Bible and use this for ourselves. Because we can identify with it, whether what affliction or sickness that we could currently be going through as a community or per, on a personal level. But the point is this, the psalmist is in terrible physical anguish, and this anguish has come to him as a means of discipline for his sin. The third we see is sin's social effects in verse 11. He says, my friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. I don't know why aloof is a funny word to say, but it just feels fun to say, aloof. He's describing that his family, his community has separated themselves from him. He's experiencing isolation from those who he loves the dearest. Now it reads as if his friends and family are concerned that they will catch the sickness he has. 
And there was a slight chance that David could have contracted some terrible disease. It could have been leprosy, talking about his wounds that stink and fester. If so, that would explain his community isolating him. It was ceremonial law for Jews to stay away from anyone who either contracted leprosy or could possibly have contracted leprosy. Read about that in Leviticus 13. But there's no further evidence to support this. So I'm kind of ruling that out. This could also mean that his friends and family see his sickness the same way that he does. As God's judgment on him, like Job's friends, looking at him going, this is happening to you because you've sinned. And in David's case, this is why it's happening. Because he has sinned. And they have chosen to separate themselves from him because of that. Now the point that can be made is that sin isolates. It breaks fellowship with God and neighbor. And when we sin against our neighbor, you guys have experienced this, whether you've been recipients of being sinned against or you've sinned against another, we deposit mistrust. We deposit pain and hurt and sadness and anger, all other kinds of fellowship breaking agents. You know, I personally have family members who are alienated because of their sin. Not because our family doesn't want to love them and care for them, but because they have separated themselves and their sin has been the main cause of that. I've seen marriages end. I've seen children refuse to talk to parents over sin. I've seen parents leave their children over sin. We've all seen relationships wrecked because of sin. Sin has serious social effects, and the psalmist reminds us of them here. Lastly, sin's assailing effects. Sin's assailing effects in Psalm 38, verse 12. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I'm like a deaf man. I do not hear like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and whose mouth are no rebukes. Here the psalmist describes the posture of his enemies. They see David's affliction and they're jumping on it. They're going to add to it. This is their opportunity to assault him, to remove him from his kingship, to do whatever they can to harm him and remove him. And although David's requests that God not let them succeed in verse 16, we read that David also recognizes that he has no defense against their accusations. He recognizes that he has sin. What they're saying is true. David knows he is guilty of evil, so he says he is remaining quiet and he just waits on the Lord's mercy because that's all he has, is the Lord's mercy. Now this does highlight how our enemies use our sin to tear us down further, right? Now we may not have people in our community that are actively trying to tear us down, maybe we do. Maybe we have coworkers, employers, neighbors, who knows? who are actively trying to kick us while we're down. But we know as Christians, we absolutely have one enemy who is for sure trying to mess with us, trying to drag us down, trying to kick us while we're down. His name is Satan. The apostle John calls him the accuser of the brothers in Revelation 12, 10. The apostle Peter warns us to be sober-minded, to be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan does everything in his power to get God's people to sin, to disobey. And when we do, he then does everything in his power to kick us while we're down, right? To keep us from remembering God's grace, to discourage us. He tells us we're not good enough. And honestly, I would say, where is the lie in that? We're not good enough. 
He tells us you can't really be saved. If you were saved, you wouldn't continue in this sin. Surely God has not forgiven you. Surely you do not have the Holy Spirit in you. He lies. He discourages. He condemns. He cheats his way into our lives. He does all he can to grab our faces and turn our eyes, gaze off Christ and onto either ourself or the world. This is the enemy that is actively trying to destroy us on the daily. But God's word tells us otherwise, Christian. God tells us in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God tells us in Romans 8, 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. God tells us in Romans 8, 38, Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Latch on to those promises. That is what we hold in our heart. That is what secures us. To remember that God will never leave us nor forsake us. That God will not let nothing separate us from his love and that was a comforting thought. Now, moving on in our text, the psalmist's faint hope. This is our third movement, Psalm 38, verses 15 through 20. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me, speaking of his enemies, who boast against me when my foot slips. Now, these are the only hope-filled words that we actually see from the psalmist here. It's a quick, like, burst of confidence a good prayer of hope, even though it's filled with anguish and pain and loneliness. This is David. This is David that we're used to reading about. The David that we hear write these moments of encouragement and blessing and confidence in God's faithfulness. So we get a glimpse of this here, but it's short-lived. Psalm 38, verse 17. For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous, they are mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. He just slips right back into hopelessness. How relatable, right? We've talked about this over and over again, how relatable it is to have these ebbs and flows in the Christian life of both hope and despair. The psalmist has shown us over and over again the pattern of the believer in distress, crying out in pain and confusion one minute, and then the next minute, confident and enjoying God's comfort, and then right back into the confusion and the pain, right? Now, I don't want to make this too personal, but you know, I've, I've had times in my life where the hurt and the sorrow is so like intense and so frequent that it's hard to find hope in those moments right? Maybe you can relate to that. It's just so intense. You feel like you have a moment to just breathe. It just keeps coming and it barrages you. And that's usually due to the severity of the circumstance, right? We go back and forth depending on what we're going through. Some situations just feel so much heavier than, they, than other ones because they are. It's like contractions during the birthing process. The closer they are together, the less time you have to regroup and focus. I've not experienced that personally, but I've witnessed it. And that's what it's like. 
the, the pain intensifies and intensifies. And it's hard to just have that breath of air, to have that sigh of relief. And I believe the psalmist here is portraying that. Now, in between the anguish of verse 17 and 19, we see the psalmist's repentance. I confess my iniquity and I am sorry for my sin, verse 18. The tone here is one of concern. It's like a child quickly saying they're sorry before the hand comes down for the spanking, which brings back like terrible flashbacks for me. <laughs> the quick saying I'm sorry as I'm being punished. And many scholarly, this is the tone that David has here. But regardless of the tone, what we see here is the point of discipline in the Christian life, and that is repentance. The act of acknowledging sin and turning from it, repentance. It accompanies faith when we are converted. When we have faith in God, we repent of our sin. And it accompanies faith up until the day we are glorified. Because where there is sin, there must be repentance. Now, if we see discipline through this lens, then we will see discipline from God as a gift of grace. Discipline from God as a gift of grace. The author of Hebrews writes of this in chapter 12, verse 5. And, you have, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not Discipline. Discipline from the Lord is a great kindness that is meant to lead us to repentance, Paul said in Romans 2.4. Now let's look at this last passage here. The psalmist concludes, this is our, our last movement, with a re request for more mercy. Psalm 38 verses 21 through 22. He says, do not forsake me, O Lord, O my God. Be not far from me. Make haste to help me. O Lord, my salvation. Now, in Psalm 22, earlier on, David asked the question, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in Psalm 22, this is coming from a place of genuine confusion. Because the psalmist did not understand why God would leave or forsake the righteous. Because as far as we know in Psalm 22, the psalmist was in good standing before the Lord. Now here in Psalm 38, the psalmist is not asking, why have you forsaken me? Because I think we've, it's pretty easy to see that he knows that God is there. He's been feeling God's arrows in his back, God's hand heavy upon him. He's been experiencing the discipline of the Lord. But the real reason for why he isn't asking, why have you forsaken me, is because he knows that God has every reason to forsake him. There's no question of why. He has sinned against the Lord. He has betrayed his heavenly king. He is fully aware that he is not worthy of God's presence. He just knew this. But by God's grace, David never stopped crying out for mercy. Not once. So he pleads with God to not forsake him. He asks God to never leave him, to be quick to save him. And that's how the psalm ends. Not much of a resolution. He ends with God, do not leave me. Be quick to save me. Now in closing, it can be a strange thing to ask God to not forsake us, right? 
to ask God, please don't leave us when we know all too well, like David here, that God has every reason to leave us, right? We, like David, can admit our sin and can testify that God would be completely just to judge us according to our sins. So Psalm 51, is what David articulates in Psalm 51 verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He acknowledges his sin. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. God will be completely righteous and completely just to condemn us for all eternity. But that's not what God has done. God sent his son Jesus, who then lived all righteousness and holiness out perfectly. Yet, even though he lived that perfect and holy life, God plunged his arrows into his back and laid his hand heavy upon him. Christ was separated from those he loved. He was whipped, he was beaten, he was ridiculed by his enemies, given a crown of thorns that was pushed into his skin. Jesus went to the cross. He endured the mental, the physical, the social, and the assailing anguish of our sins for our sake. The unfiltered wrath of God, and at the end of his life, he cried out in Matthew 27, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Church, Christ was forsaken so that you and I would never be. Christ was forsaken so that you and I would never be forsaken. Never left through sin, through sickness, in life, and in death. We will never be forsaken. Amen? Let's let the love of God shown in the person of Christ fill our hearts this morning to bring us comfort and security and rest and joy for we will never be forsaken. Let's pray.